Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, once again, is Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. It is nice to be back in this greatest of holiday seasons. And we also welcome back our old buddy, quarter to three blogger, Tom Check. Hello to everyone listening, and I guess to 2014. Is it is it 2014 yet? Uh, it's almost 2014. The the hour the hour of the new year approaches. I uh, I have my goofy hat on. I'm ready with the confetti, and I have one of those uh, what do you call those little blower things that unfurl and make a noise? There's a word for those. I've got one. And the noisemaker. Is that really all all they're called? That's all I've ever called, and they probably have some. There's probably a variety of them. Either way, I think we can assume that uh, our listeners are gathered around at their New Year's parties listening to the show. Because uh, really, like how, can, like, how can your party be a hit unless you're jamming to the sounds of Three Moves Ahead with all your closest buddies? Uh, so, Happy New Year, everybody, and uh, drive safely tonight. You know, I want to talk a little bit about both what some of our favorite or at least most memorable uh, moments of 2013 were, and then maybe get into next year a little bit and discuss what we're looking forward to, if anything. Uh, so, Tom, I figured we'd start off with you. We haven't heard from you in a little while, and I know that uh, on quarter to three, I, you know, you talked about your m- most disappointing games. So you've certainly been thinking about uh, the last year in retrospect. What are, what are some of the uh, standout moments for you? Well, uh, I did mention both on my disappointing and overrated lists uh, some really notable RTSs that came out uh, in 2013, including Company of Heroes 2, uh, Rome 2, and the, the add-on for StarCraft II, Heart of the Swarm. Uh, and I think I am ready. I, I talked about this at the Quarter to Three podcast about a week ago, but I think I'm going to go ahead and call it the year 2013 as the death of the conventional RTS. And I hate to do that because I was one of those guys who, after StarCraft II, was was sort of rubbing my hands together thinking, okay, now this is going to start a whole new wave of traditional RTSs. You know, we're just getting underway for a creative resurgence. And a lot of the people who I think should have been at the vanguard of that creative resurgence just fell flat on their faces with releases this year. Um... So part of the issue, though, is, of course, that MOBAs, they've taken a big slice of that RTS pie. You know, they appeal to people who don't want to deal with all the multitasking requirements in an RTS. The point of a MOBA is you've just got the one dude, you're working with your team. Uh, so, so a lot of people have gravitated to that. There's a big esports scene there. Um, the more traditional model, uh, you know, it, that we see in Company of Heroes 2, in StarCraft, in Rome 2, for, uh, it's a sort of a different take on it, but it's still the more traditional army management game. All three of those, which should have been exciting new releases this year, were fumbles, I, I felt. You know, you'd never know that from reading a lot of the reviews, but that's a whole other topic. Uh, I sort of feel like there were huge critical fumbles with all three of these. Creative Assembly, Relic, uh, and Blizzard, who have been the bastions of RTS development for so long, I, I was just really disappointed to see that this is what they're doing now. Um, furthermore, we, we no longer have big, huge games. We don't have Liquid Entertainment doing RTSs. Uh, Ubisoft apparently got burned by End War, uh, so they're not really doing RTSs. Electronic Arts, who had a great studio working on them, they've abandoned the genre. They've basically said, actually, I'm not entirely sure what they're doing with Command & Conquer, but at this point, it doesn't seem like it's the AAA franchise that it once was. There's no more active development for Age of Empires Online, which is what Gas Powered Games was doing for a while. That'll be shut down in the, the summer of 2014. Uh, it even had a di- disastrous launch, but one of the cool things we saw in 2013 was how Microsoft rejiggered that uh, and demonstrated that, yes, you can do free-to-play in a conventional RTS. So that was kind of excited, but shortly they're a- exciting, but shortly thereafter, Microsoft said, well, we're stopping development, and furthermore, we're shutting it down next year. Uh, Gas Powered Games also canceled their Kings and Castles RTS. Right. They got acquired by uh, Wargaming Net, which is, uh, are they Russian or Ukrainian? They, anyway, they got acquired by another company. I'm not sure what they're doing, but I don't think it's Kings and Castles. Um, so this year, basically, to me, was kind of this really sad series of nails in the coffin of, of conventional RTSs. And there's one bright exception. But for the most part, I just thought it was a terrible year for those of us who really liked the genre as it has existed over the last 15 uh, years or so. Happy New Year! (laughs) From Three Moves Ahead. 
<laughs> well, that's been a great show, guys. Okay, I, I will admit, I am I am a little bit depressed by this. Uh, if my if my desk had a drawer with some bourbon in the bottom drawer, uh, I, I definitely would be going for it right now. Um, you know, I guess. Tom, I, I kind of want to dig a little bit deeper. Like, you know, to start with your three signal fumbles, uh, those are all very different sorts of games. Do you think there's a common thread linking what you think are the missteps between uh, Heart of the Swarm and Company of Heroes 2 and Rome 2? Um, I Not amongst all three. I, I would say there is between what happened with Company of Heroes 2 and Rome 2, in that both of those seemed like they were stunted at some point during the development process, for whatever reason. I mean, Relic was... They, they were nearly lost in the, the dissolution of THQ. Uh, no telling what that did to the development process when Sega picked it up. Um, I clearly got the sense that Rome 2 was pushed out before it was ready. Both games had issues with um, uh, sort of how to follow up a really strong game that immediately preceded them. You know, Shogun 2, I thought, did a lot of things right that there was no sign of that in Rome 2. Uh, and, and the same with the difference between Company of Heroes and Company of Heroes 2. You know, they had previously done these great games, so part of it was maybe an expectation thing. Like here, if, if maybe Company of Heroes 2, and Rob, you and I might have talked about it on that show, but if it had been a, new, a release from a new developer, it might have felt a little different. If it hadn't immediately, if it hadn't been the, the follow-up for Company of Heroes, it might not have been so disappointing. Um, so there's a couple of through lines there. But, but I think uh, with... Uh, Heart of the Swarm, it's kind of clear that Blizzard knows that StarCraft II is a serious esports micromanagement intensive way of life and not just an RTS. Uh, and the content was either catering to that with these finicky new units or it was just this kind of goofy, hey, just shovel these units around in our campaign and pick some upgrades between missions and now you're done and we give you a little medal. Uh, it sort of feels like it's a sideline uh, for Blizzard and that they're mainly doing the cool creative new stuff in Diablo 3 and World of Warcraft. Um, so no, I don't know that there is a, a through line other than uh, the developers just kind of feeling like they're either falling down on the job or, or not making it uh, a primary uh, push for their for what they're doing. I, I don't know. Do you see any through line between those three? So I think between, you know, I, I sort of feel like with Heart of the Swarm and maybe Company of Heroes 2 as well, they're sort of betrayed by maybe an inherent conservatism about... Mm -hmm. RTS design from some of the big studios. I, I think, you know, we talked about this, you know, when StarCraft II launched, we were not huge fans in a lot of ways because it was such a conservative design. It was so very clearly trying to buck the trend of RTSs that come out after StarCraft and trying to get back to the good old days of, um, you know, sort of peon management, um, uh, attention mining games. And I, and I, and I think, with Heart of the Swarm, maybe you see, uh, you know, Blizzard encountering problems there in part because how do you mess with something where you become so precious about that formula? Where you become so precious about uh, how the competitive game ends up working out. And I wonder if that a similar thing happened with Company of Heroes 2, where it's just, well, Company of Heroes 1 was really, really good and everyone really, really liked it. And let's not rock the boat too hard and so you end up with um you know a game that is in many ways uh very similar to the original game uh right down to faction design uh in some key ways uh you know that's that's the that's the through line i can you know i can sort of identify i think rome does sort of stand apart as kind of its own uh special sort of disaster it, it was not a good launch and it was really astonishing. You know, I had David Heron, uh, you know, IMing me a week later, uh, you know, asking me how the hell this thing was released in the state. He, he said it, he said it was like nobody ever even play tested it. Like nobody, like nobody had ever gone through it and realized shit. This game is not actually fun. 
which is something you want to discover before you well before your game design is actually finished. So I think Rome 2 kind of went in a weird place and uh I'm playing the Gallic expansion and I'm I'm kind of enjoying it more. It performs better. A lot of the uh hassle of playing Rome 2 has been has been mitigated by patching. I'm not I I remain unconvinced that they 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 are able to fix any of the uh deeper issues in that game. But no, I think I I so I think, you know, with traditional RTS you have a sort of a conservatism issue about the way these games are made and with Rome 2 you have a um I don't know, a scoping project management problem. Uh yeah. but I don't know, Troy. I mean, do you you know what what do you think of all this? Do you, do you buy that the RTS is in deep trouble? Oh, it, it clearly is, and we talked about this with Soren about you know the state of the RTS. I mean, the har the traditional harvesting base building army management game, like Tom said, it's on death's door and has been for a while. Um, and I think Tom's right to point to the the many failures of that model this year, uh, high-profile uh, failures. I mean, Rome Two has to stand out as the big disappointment for me this year, and. Um, it comes to as I think about it, I think about something that I mean, you were on Twitter reviewing it, and you said something that just sticks in my mind. You 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 can't you can't patch game design, and I think that's one of the problems. I mean, it, Rome Two has improved. I mean, technically, technically, it's a much better game. The lag is better. Uh, it runs faster. You're not sitting around waiting for turns as much. That's great. But the core problems of the game. I, they're just so baffling, the decisions of... Like, the one that stands out for me in Rome 2, and I think it's kind of emblematic for the way that many strategy games are going, is limiting the retinue to only one person, which takes away one of the great joys of the Total War games, which is this oh, this growing, expanding retinue, all these bonuses and malices adding up, building towards the, a, a character. Either you didn't control them, you didn't choose them, they appeared, you could hire, you could try to mitigate them a bit, but generally help build these generals into characters. By giving the players so much control over the development of these characters, becoming them, turning them into almost literal role-playing characters where you choose their bonuses and their feats, it missed one of the great joys of Rome Total War, which is just all the Total War games, which is stuff happens and these People build characters, and you have to just, to deal with them. You have to manage them. Uh, something that you know, Crusader Kings does so well. Something that um, uh, Shogun did so well. And the first Rome was just excellent at this, where you, your general would fight Carthaginians. All of a sudden, he's a Carthaginian killer. Great, but he, so do you leave him in Carthage? You take his bonuses over to Turkey. Whatever. That that decision to limit the retinue and to give the player so much control over which generals get which retinue member it's kind of this weird odd micromanagement um, at that army level which wasn't there before um, I'm sure that the idea was let's give the players more choice everyone thinks players should have choices and choices and decisions are important which I agree with to an extent, sometimes taking choices away from a player is what makes things interesting. And I think Rome 2 makes, asks for too many choices, uh, too many decisions. Troy, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because it reminds me a lot of one of the fumbles in Company of Heroes 2, yep. Yep. which used to have that awesome yep. commander tree. And and this is yep. what they're doing, the thing in Company of Heroes 2. This is the alternative. This is what the designers of the first game sat down and decided to do to follow up on the first game. I mean, that was just astonishing to me. How could they not know what a disappointment that would be to anyone who enjoyed the first game, just like you're talking about with the, that commander <clears throat> stuff in the in the Total War series? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, I think this is this is the the push to give to always give players choices, uh, to not constrict them. Um, I I'm wondering where that's coming from, um, and I'm, I think that could be a reason why these games weren't quite as interesting. Well, it comes from it comes from RPGs and the mania for turning everything into, you know. D and D for uh, third edition or something like that. You know, like here's your perks, here's your bonuses, here's your skills, all this crap. And the thing is, like in these games, every single one of these games, like in Company of Heroes and with um and with Rome Two, and also I think with uh, Age of Empires Online, you had these blatant uh, examples of like hedging as far as these decisions go, where it's like, listen, we're going to give you all these little bonuses that really don't add up to a whole hell of a lot. Like, really, the goal is to almost, like, 
not change anything at all. Just hit, throw so many tiny little bonuses and uh, negatives at the player that it ends up kind of being a wash and nothing fundamentally changes. At which point you've just created you know this this whole mess uh, for for no damn good reason. You know, like oh your your infantry squads if they use this anti tank gun will get a you know one percent bonus to damage uh against against rush uh, against soviet armor armor well well rob to be fair now you're not grinding enough because if you grind more that bonus can be two percent damage oh See? man that's a whole new war <laughs> uh since we're depressing everyone can we change the the can we can we go to a more cheerful note on the conventional rts front Absolutely, please. Because I, I, I definitely have to call out, this, this was, to me, so encouraging. These guys have been making RTSs for a long time, even though a lot of folks may not realize that. I, I'm hoping but this you, is what I think it is. Well, Eugen's War, war yes, Game Airland yes. Battle was that, that was a, I mean, I, 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 this will sound like hyperbole, but I seriously mean it. It's one of the best RTSs I've ever played, and it is, and again, no hyperbole, I would call it the best single-player campaign I've ever seen in an RTS. I loved that game, and it, it stood head and shoulders above any RTS that came out this year. It is in its own way also, it, it, it's very multitasking-oriented. In that way, it's, it's a conventional RTS, but it's not, it doesn't have the peon management stuff. Um, it's also very firmly rooted in a specific historical flavor and time. You know, it's not crazy sci-fi or fantasy. Um, but I, I love that game, and it was so encouraging to see that come out. You know, if we had had even just one more RTS like that this year, I just would have been over the moon. I, I also just want to I also want to call out the fact that that is one of the best supported releases yeah. of the yeah. year. Like that thing keeps getting new con not huge like revolutionary content expansions, but like it keeps growing and maps keep being tuned and there keeps being like new stuff in that game that was not there at launch and I have never paid for an ounce of DLC. Yeah. Yep. They're they're definitely the good guys this year as far as RTS developers. Uh and what a what a fantastic beautiful engine too. I mean a, a lot of people sort of go gaga over the creative assembly graphics engines, but I you know, I, I don't think there are any RTSs that look as good as Wargame Airland Battle. And it performs brilliantly, yes, which yes. creative assemblies yep. does not. Yeah, exactly. It's also really hard. Really hard. Well, that it, was it is, it is hard in the good in the good old-fashioned way where you you know you should be able to win this. Um, and a lot of the game is trying to figure out how you beat it. I think, uh, I, mean, I can't go, I mean, they're, they're an evolved client, so we're, of course, very, very proud of them. Uh, but they're all, they've, they do such great work, and I don't think they get quite as much credit uh, as they really deserve. I was, I was glad to see them pop up on your, near the, on your list of great games, Tom. Uh, Troy, one of the secrets, by the way, to getting better at Wargame Airland Battle, uh, play people who aren't very good. Uh, and I can loan you my friend Bruce Garrick, and that'll make you feel fantastic about your war game airline battle <laughs> skills. But he's, like, memorized the 1985 Army Field Manuals. Like, I mean, he, he, he should know this, right? He's got it. Well, yeah, Rob, <laughs> orders of... He's, he's been fighting the commies in his head for years. <laughs> and orders of battle really are only a first step. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually you have to lead them. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know... That, that's true. The, the campaign, too, is just, you know, it just reminded me in so many good ways of just another of my favorite games, which was um, Close Combat, A Bridge Too Far, uh, where ah. you've got these these linked sets of really cool maps where you have different battle groups basically fighting their own campaigns, right? Like, you, you, you'll you have on one front, you know, a brand spanking new American armored division, you know, tanks, you know, out the wazoo, uh, air support, just all sorts of cool stuff. And they're just rolling over, you know, you know, enemy tank divisions, whatever. It's great. And then somewhere else, you've got some airborne division desperately clinging to a foothold uh, between a couple cities and, like, trying to throw back wave after wave. And you get these really cool... I mean, this is what a dynamic campaign should be. It's not. It's not set missions. It's sort of this. It is. It is a. It is a war campaign that you sort of write collaboratively with the game. 
you know, where yeah. you're going to have, okay, this army group, it did not go well. Their first, like, that first battle went really badly. It's now, de- like, it is badly depleted on helicopter support. Uh, so how am I going to play it differently now as this campaign goes on? Or how am I going to save these guys? That's really cool. And there aren't many games uh, on the war game side or on the uh, RTS side that do anything like that. Yeah, and that's that's why I ended up calling it out on my year-end list is because I wanted to make a list that I thought uh, was a series of games that were especially strong with narrative. And RTSs have struggled for so long with narrative and how to tell stories. And traditionally, you play a mission and you watch a cutscene, and that's the story. And then you play a mission and then you watch a cutscene. Uh, I, I don't even think there are cutscenes in War Game Airland Battle. Uh, all the narrative is, like you said, Rob, you're, you're writing a collaborative story with the game designers uh, in the course of the campaign. I love that story. So, Yeah, that was, that was a definite bright spot in... Uh in the in the RTS in the RTS field this year and i guess okay so looked at differently though maybe maybe it's a little too soon maybe it's a little too soon to to pound nails into that coffin okay cuz like all thing all cons, all things considered we still had a number of significant releases in that in that genre and one of them was really really good uh from from sort of a from not a, not, not i don't want to call it a non-traditional developer but not one of the guys that you think of uh not one of the not one of the huge like household names of rts right. design so and, and also we don't know like i i'm assuming did company of heroes 2 and rome 2 did they sell well at least because if they were commercially successful then maybe we can leave a nail or two out of the coffin. So you're, you're right. Maybe. I, I know that Rome 2 was very commercially successful. It was regularly at the top of, of uh, sales charts. So Okay, well. well. And I, I so heard Company more of those would do them better. Yeah. 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 yeah, that would be that would be great. I think all things considered, to, to continue on the theme of cheering ourselves up, I think all, all things considered, it was a good year uh, for, for strategy. Like, I... Really, oh, sure. yeah. I, I I was never never lacking for really good strategy games to play. Um, I thought Europa Universalis Four was just absolutely fantastic. I adored that game. Um, it was you know it basically swallowed my uh, you know swallowed my summer and uh, fall. Uh, what what I really appreciate about EU Four is that it it continues to show that Paradox is willing to do two things that have historically been difficult for them. Uh, And those two things are making dramatic changes to their game designs. I really liked how a lot of EU4 was, hey, let's consider, did this work in EU3, in Victoria 2, in Crusader Kings 2? Let's let's consider what worked, what didn't work. Let's throw some things out. Let's revise some things. For for Paradox, it it was a kind of a bold step that they were willing to to take so many chances with it. So I really liked seeing that. And it's showing that they're, they're... they have a renewed commitment, and it's about time, and uh, to to doing the the work of careful Q and A before a release. You know, traditionally you say about a paradox game, eh, I'm going to wait for a patch, uh, and you you can't really say that anymore. I mean, they're putting things out that are solid at the release, and they're taking design chances. So those were two very encouraging things for me to see in EU4. Yeah, I just absolutely, I absolutely adored it, uh, and yeah, the it is a difficult balance to strike when talking about the conservatism earlier uh with those other games it was really neat to see paradox find new things to do with europe universalis because i certainly thought like at the time that europe universalis 3 kind of wrapped up i didn't really feel there was much left to do and i was actually a little leery of the idea of an eu4 when i felt like they kind of you know bent over that ground really thoroughly and i was really delighted to see how you know it was recognizably you know the same game i've known in, in a lot of ways but just played completely differently the dynamics were so much better in eu4 than they'd ever been in 3 um it yeah it was you know hats off uh to you know sort of the the quiet revolutions they had with the uh with the monarch points and the sort of revamped diplomacy systems it, it was the Civ Four of the series. <laughs> we are very we, are, we we are very proud of EU Four. I'll say that. Uh, yeah, it's it's as far as other games that I played this year. I mean, if you've noticed the blog, I haven't updated it in like three months because I just have not had time to play uh, much of anything. It's been a crazy, crazy fall. Um, 
I, I've played a lot of the Paradox games, of course, because they're a client, and I played a lot of EU4. I'm trying to think of what else I played that I really actually liked. I mean, there were a lot of games I tried to play and just could not get into. Uh, for, I mean, I'll, a game a lot, of people, a lot of people like that I have a hard time falling in love with, uh, Fallen Enchantress Legendary Heroes. It's a game that you know a lot of people really, really like, getting a lot of praise. I'm even appearing on some uh, best-of-the-year lists. Uh, and I played quite a bit of that, and I'm still not completely sold on it, but they're really doing some neat uh, world-building there still uh, in Legendary Heroes. I really appreciate that. Uh, they're still updating it. They're still changing it, still tweaking it. Uh, Derek uh, and Stardock are... Uh, I'm not going to go as far as say it's the, it's better than Master of Magic, but it's as close, probably, as any fantasy strategy game has come in a long time. I'll, I'll take that up. I mean, I, I think I, I think far better than Master of Magic. Master of Magic, there's a lot of nostalgia there, and yeah, there was a, there was a lot. Of course, these are nostalgia goggles, absolutely. Right, uh, but I, I loved what they did with Legendary Heroes. I mean, the the funny thing about Fallen Enchantress uh, is that it's. Uh, you know, it started as elemental. Um, it, it there's this almost Frankenstein, not Frankenstein, because that implies that it gets worse. But but there's this quality that it started in this terrible shape, and then Stardock kept working on it, and then it became Fallen Enchantress, and even that had some issues. And then Legendary Heroes came out, and it's since been patched with upgrades. It, it's this diamond in the rough that is continually having that rough chipped away and I really do feel with Legendary Heroes that it is now a, a diamond. I, I feel that it's finally this gem that it was supposed to be uh, with some of the changes that were made to tactical combat, the revamped uh, hero system uh, and, and just the, I think the AI is fantastic in the sense that Sure, it's got its weaknesses. You can see that it's an AI. But when you look at the absolutely inept AI and some otherwise really good releases from the previous year, and maybe we can talk about Drive on Moscow, but uh, I, I feel here is a, an example of what AI needs to do in a strategy game. It needs to understand the principles of the game as it's designed. And it needs to be able to mm -hmm. not be flawless and beat you every time, but to at least use the same tools that you're using. So I feel the AI in that is fantastic. I love the world building that, that Derek brings to that vanilla elemental world. Um, and I, I love the post-release support it's gotten. They added a, a really cool uh, undead faction over Halloween that I still don't understand what you're yep. supposed to do with it, and I love that about it. I, I, it's this completely new set of tools that, that baffle me, uh, and, and I love that it's a free add-on. Oh, no, no, it's not. It's like a $2 add-on or something. Um, it's, really exciting. it's really exciting to watch them work on it. I mean, that's, I've kind of resist fantasy games in general, so maybe that's part of why you can't fall in love with it. But it's so much fun just to watch the changes and watch the improvements and see them keep working on it. And with Galsiv 4 coming out, or 3, I guess, Galsiv 3 coming out sometime next year, I, I think Stardock has really shown that they can... Um, I mean, Galsiv 2 was a lot of expansion packs and eventually it turned into a really really great amazing uh science fiction 4x game i think that you know the constant updates and patches for fallen enchantress stardeck has shown they can continually iterate and iterate and improve and it's just fun to watch them yeah. work the galaxy of two comparison is awesome troy because you're right that was the same kind of thing wasn't it that here's this kind of cool 4x it's a little vanilla a little bland but over time it really does it's that diamond in the rough thing over time they chip away the rough and, and you got the diamond yeah yeah I'm still going to say, I'm not sure, like, it's interesting, I, I, are they sort of the exception to the, you know, the problems of trying to patch in design after the fact, or do we consider that <laughs> with Fallen Enchantress, they kind of scrapped so much of Elemental, you're effectively talking about a different game? Yeah, I, I think it's the second, I think Fallen Enchantress, it, it, it's a reboot, yeah, I would say. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, just a, just a quick aside here because I just wanted to talk about uh, this with Tom, uh, you know, at some point. Uh, and this is a little bit of a detour, but arguably it's a strategy game. Um, oh, I love these. I love these where finally someone else is going to push the boundaries of what is and isn't a strategy game. Someone well, other than me. Go. Hit me with it, Rob. Let's talk about X Rebirth. Wow, I never would have guessed that a spaceship trade... Well, you know what? There is trading and kind of empire building there, isn't there? Fair point. Fair yeah. point. Uh, why do you want to talk about that one, though? It's awful. <laughs> I, I know, but I just... I, I, need, I, I, haven't, I need to have my therapy session about it. Well, what you need to do, Rob, is delete that silliness from your hard drive and install X3... Oh, is it uh, Terran Alliance? Terran Assault? Terran Conflict. Terran, 
Terran Conflict, yeah. That's the one. That's what X Rebirth really accomplished for me, is it got me to install that and, and start setting up an empire and arranging little trade routes. What the, what the hell is X3's Terran Conflict? Ah, Rob, do you want to initiate him or shall I? So you can, you can lead off, and then I want to talk just briefly about X Rebirth. So the X Games, Troy, are... Uh, who's the developer, Rob? Egosoft Publishes. What's the name of the I thought developer? it was Egosoft. Oh, maybe it is Egosoft. Okay. So it's... Uh, and what country are they from? That I don't remember. It, okay, because I do feel it's... It seems like... It feels like one of those Eastern European games where they kind of have their own agenda and they don't think do things in the slick American way. Uh, but at any rate, uh, Troy, it's basically the successor to Elite. But instead of just forcing you to play okay. one ship and do the trading, you set up, you buy stations, you buy properties, you set up routes of convoys. Uh, you can do all this faction grinding. That That's from Elite, though. But it's got a much more expansive empire building element to it than most elite style trading games so rob would you say that's a good okay. yeah. uh, that's a fair assessment so then x rebirth is their reboot of it for next generation well not next generation for for uh, a, an upgraded graphics engine they wanted to do more stuff where you could get out and walk around on space stations and they had all these epic plans and rob how did that work out not well, Tom. Not well <laughs> at all. You sound depressed. You sound depressed. Rob, tell me about it. Have a seat on this couch here uh, yeah, and, and talk to me about it. Oh, my God. It's just, you know, it, it's, it looked so shiny in some ways. Like, it looked like there's going to be so much to do in this game. And from screenshots I'd seen, it looked really pretty. And at first, I was kind of impressed. Like, oh, wow. Look at those space stations. Look at all these spaceships in the in the universe. This is really cool. Um, and then it just kind of kept dragging on and on and on. And really, like, it is... I, I think what really got to me is just the fact it takes all of, like, the majesty and wonder of space and <laughs> makes it as dreary and horrible as a drive through slow freeway traffic through the rust belt of the United States. Yeah, it, it's just clotted with just stuff that they threw in there, stuff that doesn't work well or even look good, and uh, all the cool ship upgrades. Because one of the really cool things about X3 uh, was all the different ships that you could buy and fly and own. And here you've just got one ship. I think it's even called the Skunk or something goofy like the that. Albion Skunk. Yeah, uh, and that's all you're ever going to fly. Um, the upgrade and it's about system as exciting was... and sexy as a minivan. Like you are, you are flying yeah. <laughs> a space minivan. You could, you could maybe drop your kids off at soccer in, in the Albion Skunk. It's that kind of ship, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, really, Rob, just forget. Uh, pretend X Rebirth never happened. Just load up Terran Conflict, and uh, it's like playing Transport Tycoon in outer space. Uh, yeah. You know, something I was thinking about that though is just. I'm sort of amazed how many times you see games sort of get, like, there's clearly some runaway ambition at work, but then there's also, like, a sort of blatant indifference to how the game actually performs. I feel like you see, saw that a little bit in, in, in Rome 2, sure. and uh, absolutely saw some of that with, um, with, with X Rebirth. And it's just interesting to me how... In some ways, I, like this, this was the year I sort of noticed there's this trend of these sort of self-serving um, approaches from developers where a game comes out and it's really bad. And the developers instantly like, oh yeah, well we're going to patch it. We're not going to leave you guys hanging. We're going we're gonna to totally fix this with patches. It's going to be great. Don't you worry about those reviews. We understand we messed up, but it's, it's going to be great. And I, I find that kind of interesting because it's it's there's like an implicit evasion that I see happening more and more now. And there's nothing you're like, what are you going to tell your community? Like, yeah, we okay, that game sucks. There's nothing we can do to fix it. Sorry. Uh, but nevertheless, there definitely seems like this is a year where suddenly I started getting tons of emails from PR people about patches. This is the year that suddenly like trying to make a crappy game tolerable became a selling point like hey look at us man we're we're in there pitching we're, we're making this game yeah okay it's not fun but that's just because we hadn't we hadn't done the play test we hadn't we hadn't we hadn't we hadn't been it polished it as much as we should but once we once we put that layer of polish on mm, boy you're gonna you're gonna be in for a treat you know what the, that brings to mind for me rob one of the low points of the year 
Uh, and again, maybe the nail in uh, maybe a nail in the coffin of another genre. Uh, EA's SimCity was that same kind of oh. thing. And, you know, you, you got Lu Lucy Bradshaw, who is, I think, a, a, a producer over there at Maxis, uh, a, a series of kind of press release slash blog posts about how they were really going to, you know, fix it and work on it, and um, some of which were really just embarrassingly uh, tone deaf, too. Um, but EA, you know, that was kind of the last hope for city builders slipping into this free-to-play territory where you build a house and you wait an hour and you come back and you build a market and you wait an hour. Um, SimCity, to me, was I was hoping it would be this this great resurgence of conventional city builders that aren't free-to-play boondoggles. And it was just, just terrible execution. And not just the instability, but design issues with the little cities and the interconnectedness of them not working. Uh, and just EA trying to paint it as, yeah, we're really going to fix it. And we know you might have problems with it, but by golly, it's going to get better. Um, uh, yeah, just a low point of that kind of uh, game release this year for me. Well, and now you can literally, we always to joke with you, you, you get a buggy game, you're paying to be in the beta. Now you can literally pay to be in the beta yeah. for early release <laughs> on Steam. And a lot of it is that same thing. Developers trying to get the money early. Um, will the game actually get fixed? Will it be patched? Will it be improved? Some developers will, some developers won't. Um, I don't want to say too much about it because, of course, we have clients who are doing that, and so I don't want to rain on the entire idea, but it is a brand new model which seems to be assuming that players are okay with playing incomplete beta games, trying to improve and get the money up and, front. And, but that, I mean, when it's clearly labeled a beta, though, like I, 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 I'm, I share your reservations, Troy, as far as what that does. But SimCity was not an example of that. By golly, that was oh, a, yes. that was oh, a sixty dollars fine. Ab ab yeah. Absolutely. Um, yep. Yep. Oh, absolutely. So do you do you are you guys as sort of down on the of where down on where city builders are as I am? Because that's another one where I sort of feel like, wow, that's going to really kill city builders now. What what do we have to look forward to? A couple of games. That, actually. Encourage me, Troy. Year, what what are some good city builders that I can look forward to? Help me out. Well, there are, there are two two good city builders. Well, two one that I think is going to be really good, and one I'm looking forward to because it's a neat idea. Uh, first is from. Um, G -g 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 gas lamp games. They made Dungeons of Dreadmore, one of my favorite light roguelikes of recent years. They're doing a steampunk city builder called Clockwork Empires. Um, oh, so I've it's not a it's not a roguelike then. They're they're jumping genres. They're jumping genres to a city Good. builder, and Good. it is. I've I've linked. If you read my follow my Twitter, I've, I've linked to some of their dev blogs every now and then because they're they're actually quite funny as they talk about the bugs they run into as they try to design the games. They talk about, you know, okay, we're trying to create a system for the production of iron. Here are the problems. Here's what it looks like, and here's this funny picture of what went wrong when we tried to make iron. Uh, but it actually, there's going to be some really nice procedural stuff going on. It looks like there's. I'm not a big fan of steampunk. But I like the, I just love the their art. I love the aesthetic. I love the humor they're putting into it. I love the idea of the class system they're putting in, the development, the economic system to make it feel like it looks like it's going to be somewhere between, you know, SimCity and maybe Railroad Tycoon because there's going to be industry of somehow. And I, it looks really, really neat. Gaslamp Games, uh, Clockwork Empires, check it out. Now, Troy, before you, tell me about this, before you tell me about the second one, I have a very important yep. question for you about yep. Clockwork Empires. Is it free to play? No, of course not. Good. Okay. <laughs> that one, then, is going on the list of things to look forward to. Good. And the other one is called Banished, and it is from Shiny oh, yeah. Rock Software. Uh, it kind of looks like, I mean, it's kind of, it's a very small team. I think I'll even see one or two guys. Um and the conceit is, you know, it, they have this conceal you're banished to a wasteland, blah, blah, blah. But really, it's kind of an Anno-type game, I think. Anno meets Settlers, where you have to work from the land, build it up, not pillage it completely, because you have to have, rely on this island and these resources in perpetuity. Um, so it's, you know, pseudo-historical like the Anno games. Uh, with production chains like the Settlers games. It looks really good. Uh, Gamasutra uh, did a video interview uh, f last week 
uh, with the lead dev. Um, you can probably check that out in Gamma Sutra. Just search Gamma Sutra Banished, uh, Shining Rock software. It looks really interesting, and it's it's nice to see a proper city builder because we have I mean the, the Anno games are kind of the last really great serious city builders out there. Anno 2070. We have Tropico as the lighter on the lighter side of things. Did um, you see what happened to Anno this year though? Have you tried oh Anno online? Oh, of course. Oh, no, it, was, it was unspeakable. It's just it it really because An- I loved Anno 2070 and to just see the, and even An- Anno 1404 or whatever the last one was yep. uh, to see that executed as an online thing. I was like, well, you know, I like the Anno games. I'm going to try this, and it was your standard free to play model, and it's just this like Farmville BS stuff. Uh, God, it was so depressing to see that. Oh, this is what they're doing with Anno. Thanks, Ubisoft. Well, jerks. this is <laughs> Ubisoft, especially. You know, th- there should be a place in hell for whoever in that company decided to create an entire division basically around building shitty Facebook versions of franchises they're not doing much with at the moment. Uh, because, like, just the level of disregard for their own properties on display in games like that, and then the time of whatever poor bastards are assigned to work on that, and the people who you know, blunder into playing it. Um, it's just there's nothing about it that doesn't make me cringe a little bit. Uh, I, I, you know, I was I was asked uh, to take a look at it and see if it was maybe something, uh, you know, wor- worth covering. And I mean, I could not I could not make it an hour because it was like it, it was wow. it was just. You, you, it's one of those things where you don't play it. Like, I mean, you're supposed to play it like come in every day, and I stuck with it for maybe a week or two. And you start, of course, hitting those paywalls where, oh, you can't do anything until you either wait two days or buy some gems. And uh, it's just such a blatant business model instead of game design. It's sad. And yeah. the other the other really depressing city builder news this year was um, Tilted Mill was working on something called Medieval Mayor, which I think is on right. uh, indefinite hiatus now. What's going on with Tilted uh, Mill? Which is sad to hear. I do not know other than they decided that Medieval Mayor is not going to be their next game. Did they announce something? I don't, and I don't recall if it's because they're doing something else or if they're on hard times. Uh, but at any rate, they were going to do what looked like a mostly conventional city builder, and now they're not. But Troy, I'm real glad you mentioned those other two because I'm th- those do sound encouraging. Yeah, Clockwork Empires is definitely near the top of my list for for next year. Um, there's a certain I, I'm with you, Troy. I think steampunk can be a little overdone, but this is this is like light on the punk and heavy on like the Victorian absurdity in some yep. ways. Like very much informed by like Monty Python send ups of movies like Zulu uh, and, and and stuff like that. It's like it you know lots of bushy mustaches, red coats. Um, and people making bad decisions about where to place colonies. Uh, and then, of course, there's, I think, a lot of, like, uh, paranormal, supernatural, magical-type elements involved in it. Like, basically, what if what if the yep. British Empire went out and colonized, um, you know, the New World and discovered it's filled with elder gods or, you know, stuff like that. So there's, it looks like there's a lot of neat stuff uh, happening with that. And, yeah, that's, that's something to look forward to. SimCity definitely stands out as just... An abominable disappointment, and I really feel the frustrating thing about it is from the way EA talked up uh, the sales, from all the attention that was focused on SimCity, there is excitement about games like this. That audience hasn't gone away. People will show up for this, but because there's no faith, no confidence that these games actually have any value or speak to anyone. I feel like they're almost sabotaged from the start. Everything about SimCity was basically designed around this idea of what's what's going to be the hook to get people to play it. Well, like let's let's make it all interconnected. That'll be the thing. You, you, you like it's a it's a city builder you can play with your friends. And forget the fact that nobody ever did I don't that. I play city builders my friends. Yeah. Well, to be fair, they they did have this idea. I mean. I, Part of what you can do with that is you can just play all the different cities yourself. And that was how I I was happy to play it with friends. But I was intrigued by this idea that each city had to be interdependent with other cities, even if I was playing those cities. And from a design standpoint, I I like that idea. It's just that the execution was so terrible. It was fraught with so many issues in terms of the interconnectedness working or not working or the traffic model falling apart or this weird population model they had where each 
person was basically a little ball that would roll around and just come to rest somewhere. Um, so I didn't mind so much the, the basic ideas as as I minded the execution. Yeah, um, I I don't know. I think I think the execution and the basic ideas are really close than linked in that game though. And I I don't know. I, the I think the 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 thing that really poisoned it though was probably the the limited map size. That that probably put paid to the game ever. I, I feel like so many things stemmed from the fact that you ran out of interesting things you could do with your city long before you ever right. long before you ever ran out of like goals to shoot for, long before you ever ran out of stuff that you, you might want to end up doing with it, you ran out of room. And and then the, the Well that is kind of a fun Well no, ahead, then the sorry. sheer amount of the game that became a feces management sim. Uh was just astonishing. Like when I think of SimCity, I think of trying to deal with the just rivers of poop that my Sims were generating. Don't, and don't forget the trash. Don't forget your trash. You got to deal with that too. <laughs> the trash. The, the trash is bad, and of course these are all huge things to deal with. You know, like the the building footprints are gigantic. Uh, so eventually your city is slowly overrun with landfills and sewage treatment centers. But the trash was bad. I could not believe, though, how much of my game was spent, like, dreading the sound of a backed-up toilet. Um, it was like your your city would hit a, certain, hit a certain size, and then it was, like, listening to someone's, like, stomach mic'd up after a bad night of, like, Mexican food and t- cheap tequila. It was just, it was it was awful. And th- that got through, like... Literally awful, did it? <laughs> Uh, now, see, I don't, I don't mind that because then what that means, Rob, is you have to make a dedicated sewage city. Yep. <laughs> but if it works well, you know, if it doesn't work well, if your sewage isn't going to go over there, if you don't have any confidence that the model is operating, then you're right. It's every city is going to be this gurgling <laughs> stomach full also, of poo. I, I didn't find the sewage city too much fun to manage. Like honestly, it was it filled a role, <laughs> but it was like it's like you know, if, like you have Euro Truck Simulator. Like this is like if you made a simulator game about. Like those guys who used to go and like clean out, um, you know, like clean out septic pools in like the 1800s and cities, stuff like that. Like, no, that's not that's not a, that's not a job I want to do in my game. Well, it's part of running a city, Rob. I'm sorry to tell yeah. you that. But you got to deal with the sewage. So. <laughs> but I, I do get what you're saying. I mean, that man, this idea of of starting with a little burg and then turning it into a sprawling metropolis is such a fundamental tenet of why people play SimCity. And the the fact that part of this game design is that you're going to have your city confined into a little shoebox. Yeah, that's a huge turnoff for a lot of people. So I can understand that being an obstacle. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm just gonna say. It. I really, I you know, in the last analysis, I really like where Civ Five has ended up. I liked Brave New World. Oh. I liked it a lot. I think it was a great expansion. Yeah, well, you're not alone. I mean, that's not that's hardly yeah, going like, out I on a limb. A yeah, I'm the naysayer here. <laughs> I should have. Yeah, so I'm going to say it. I hate where Civ Five is. I think it's terrible. I think Brave New World. So Firaxis did a, such a great job with the XCOM add-on that I almost feel like they've atoned for Brave New World. But I hated all of just little extra click and pick stuff that just crank got crammed into brave new world um I, there are a couple of bright spots in it that i would certainly grant you like i love what they did with trade um which by the way reminds me of one of the really cool things about eu4 this idea of trade as a as this stream it's like a river and you just try to position yourself in the right place of the river and maybe if you're powerful enough you can divert the flow a little bit even though I haven't really figured that out in EU4, I love that part of the game. Similarly, I really like how they let you play with trade routes and the difficult decisions to make with trade routes in Brave New World. But otherwise, I can think of very little about Brave New World that didn't just feel like just extra click and pick decisions I had to make. So I'm the outlier there. I'll freely grant. Uh, Come on, Troy. Let's get him. Boo! Boo to you! <laughs> I, I, liked, I really like how... Um, Brave New World fleshed out the systems that were introduced in the second, the first expansion. Uh, how religion uh, was expanded and became actually kind of useful uh, in some interesting ways. I liked, um, I, I like, I like the art. It's a stupid little thing, but I like 
discovering new art. I love putting them in my museums. I like it's a little bit finicky, but I like maxing out my museums, making sure everything's lined up properly. I hate it when somebody else builds the Parthenon first, because damn it, I want that early tourism thing. I think that may be a little bit overpowered. It's really easy to get the culture victory, I think. Um, but the AI can play the culture victory pretty well, but it's a more interesting culture victory than just max out all your tech trees. Uh, and the ideology thing, which I was not that keen on at first, I really didn't understand ideology, didn't like it. Uh, I remember when we did the show, I was kind of, eh, this ideology thing just seems like one more stupid little track. Uh, but it actually does change how you view your neighbors, um, which ideology track you want to take. It becomes a more interesting diplomatic endgame uh, at the end, uh, which is kind of the hard thing about Civ. It's been hard through all the Civs, trying to make the last, you know, 50 years of civilization interesting. Uh, unless you're racing for space, there's really not a lot of interesting stuff to do in Civ. There's never been a lot of interesting stuff to do in Civ once you get up to the World War II tech in my Oh, good Lord, just, I totally disagree. You start folding just, the naval game and the air game, uh, the uh, the, you know, all, the, racing for nukes, the, the UN, all that. I mean, the thing is, a lot the, of games, are, games are won or lost the before... Yeah. Uh, they're yeah, won or lost before you get right. there. But I think right. if you get there with a close game, in a, historically in Civ, there's still a lot of interesting things to happen. It's just few games get there. Um, yeah, and then th that's kind of the problem. Uh, I think this makes the games closer, more interesting. The the, the new nations are great and are are quite good, but they've always been good with uh, the development of civs. I just like how gods and kings filled out the picture. Brave um, new world, you mean? I don't. I don't pardon. pardon? You mean Brave New World, Gods and Kings? I like how Brave New World filled in the picture that was introduced in Gods and Kings. I like how it messed around a bit with the uh, social stuff. Though I still, though, still, I still have an issue with the social policies just being a series of perks. There's another RPG example. <laughs> and I'm going, <laughs> going away from the civics, which had bonuses and penalties in Civ 4 to the just straight perks of social policies in Civ 5, which I'm still not a huge fan of. Uh, but I, I, I do like uh, how all the new mini-systems fit together really well. And yeah, the, 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 trade, the trade system is, is, is kind of excellent. Um, it is good to have the choices of, do I want to spread my religion? Do I want that extra diplomatic push and culture push? Do I just want to send more hammers to my capital to build that wonder faster? Th those are the types of interesting decisions um, that I think Civ as a game and series has thrived on. Um, and it's, I'm surprised it took them this long to figure out how to make trade routes interesting. I, you, hearing you talk, Troy, and, and understanding that a lot of people like Civ Five and they really do appreciate the stuff that's added in Gods and Kings and Brave New World, maybe I'm a little premature when I say that SimCity is killing city builders. Because I, I think part of my problem with Civ Five is that I think of it as the Civ series has historically been as, as a game about empires struggling with each other. You know, and you, you've got to deal with your neighbors. Sometimes you have to fight with them. Almost always it's going to be adversarial unless you can subjugate them. Um, so for, for me, it's a strategy game about warring empires, even if they're not literally warring, competing empires, conflicting empires. Uh, I think what Civ Five does well for so many people who like it is this kind of city building thing. Like I'm creating an empire, and so what if the AI sucks? I'm, I'm putting together these little pieces, and I'm building this here, and I'm clicking on this choice there, and I'm making this this clockwork organism, kind of. Uh, so, so hearing you des describe what you like about it, Troy, makes me think that, hey, maybe Civ Five with the expansions, maybe that's a city builder. I still get the whole competing empires thing. I still have to race uh, the Civs quite a bit. Um, and there are new ways for them to screw you over, uh, especially with the uh, the voting system in the, in the Congress. You know, have somebody make my die completely useless. Um, so all those trading deals I had to sell my extra die to the Arabs, completely ruined. Um, uh, the embargo system is, is quite neat. I mean, there 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 are new ways for empires to screw you. And the Zulus and the Huns are, are terrible, terrible neighbors. Especially the Zulus. They're the worst. That's uh, that's racist. It's yeah, it's super racist. I'm sorry, Troy. It's, yeah, it's really it's, it's offensive. Because you, you've also, Troy, so I've, I've heard Fine. you bad-mouthing Japan, too. Yeah, that's just not right. <laughs> uh, 
you know, so and I, I will say I spend a lot of my time uh, in Brave New World at war, uh, which I always enjoy. Just give me more reasons to um, sort of break from the inertia of my game plan uh, and where I'm just sort of watching turn cycle and sort of go out there and play an active role at, uh, you know, taking the fight to the other AI factions. I enjoyed that. Hey, I was here. To, I was pleased to hear you uh, call out, though, uh, Enemy Within. I really was happy both to see Firaxis and 2K continue expanding and working on uh, XCOM, and then I was also really excited by uh, a lot of a lot of the new stuff that was added to that game. Yeah, that was a really good example of of a download or not uh, an add-on that both addressed certain complaints by like adding a bunch of new maps and whatnot, uh, and at, just gave you new stuff to play with, uh, with some surprises too. Like I haven't gotten all the way through it, but I'm still discovering things like, oh, look at this. This looks fun. You know, I can't wait to see where this goes. And oh, what am I going to do with these resources? Uh, I, I really like what they did with that one. And I also enjoyed just how um, there's there's some really cool potential for sort of authored moments in that game that I, I think were really nice in Enemy Within. I thought the um, the, the Newfoundland mission, where you end up going to this uh, fishing village, uh, you know, in, you know in, the, in the dead of winter, and everyone's just, like, dead. Um, and you, you guys are sort of creeping through this village, and there's some, zo- like, some chrysalid zombies, uh, you know, running around. And that mission is just so good and so tense uh, that I just, you know, I I found myself thinking, this is, you know, this is so exciting. I could almost play an entire game of just really cool, you know, XCOM missions. Uh, it's not just about the randomness. There's there's also there, there's also potential for like narrative tension that I absolutely enjoyed. Uh, and yeah, the, the, some some fantastic memories from from that expansion. Uh, I found it telling that uh, there's a, there's a great um, iOS. A game site called Pocket Tactics, and they picked as their best iOS game of the year. Uh, and I, who can argue with this? Uh, the XCOM port, which, as far as I know, is pretty much just straight up XCOM on an iPad. Yep. I haven't. I haven't played it. I have you guys given the shot on iPad? No, I haven't. I'm kind of tempted, but. Well, but I've already played it on the PC. So why would I? I mean, I, if maybe they did some really cool cross-platform thing where I could play on the iPad and then put it back on the PC and back and forth. But I've, I'm playing XCOM plenty, so I don't need it on my iPad. But it does look like folks who, for whatever reason, aren't playing on the PC, they can play a pretty full-fledged version without the add-on so far uh, on their iPads. Because, you know, it's not... You're, tra- you're traveling, I suppose. You want to kill aliens on the plane? Yeah, that's true. Uh, and you guys did talk on the other the previous podcast about some of the awesome board game ports for, for the iOS that came out this year. So, uh, you know... There's that as well. So overall, I'd have to say, you know, yeah, it was here with some ups and downs, but I, I think I, I can't think of too many years where we came out of it with as much to talk about as we came out of this year. Like this definitely seemed like there were a lot of major releases for strategy games. Uh, you know, it seemed like a busier year than, you know, 2012 was, uh, for instance, or 2011. Like, you know, I think, Toward the end, of this, toward the start of this podcast, uh, it, it sort of felt like there were times where there's some real nervousness about where strategy in general was headed, um, and obviously some of that anxiety has intensified, particularly with regard to the traditional RTS. But I gotta say, I'm, I was I, I'm really thrilled by sort of the diversity of experiences I had this year. Are are roguelikes? I mean, you guys have struggled with this before, like like FTL and stuff. Are roguelikes are kind of strategy games, right? Ish, they're RPGs. Oh, here's, games. Here, here's one that I would question. That Yeah, they're RPGs traditionally, but here's one that I think comes way closer to the traditional strategy game definition. Did you guys play a putatively roguelike, but I, I even hesitate to call it that, called uh, Desktop Dungeons? Yeah. I did, I did not, that, but that I had to it me strongly is... recommended to me by uh, Rowan Kaiser, who said that, yeah, he said something very similar to what you're saying, Tom. Well, it's a serious brain buster. It's not... I think of a lot of roguelikes as games where you stumble around and you, you whack against whatever appears in front of you. You know, that whole exploration yep. thing. And some of those are very good. This is not that at all. This no. uh, is uh, a, a little one-screen, self-contained level. 
if I compare it to Minesweeper, that doesn't do it justice, but that's the idea that you've just got the one fogged screen and all the monsters and all the exploration of the screen are a resource that you have to carefully calculate and manage. Um, it, it's not puzzly in the sense that the developer puts a solution on each level. It's, it's entirely dynamic and emergent, but it's puzzly in the sense that you sit there and you look at it and you think. You don't just stumble around and whack into things. Uh, and it's got, uh, it's got this great long-term uh, meta level where you unlock stuff and upgrade new classes and expand your city. Uh, but that really tapped into the part of me that, that enjoys a strategy game or a war game. Uh, I loved that game this year, Desktop Dungeons. Yeah, it's very, very good. I need to give that a shot. I haven't. I, you know, the whole roguelike renaissance has sort of gone past me. I think in part because roguelikes, by their very nature, can sometimes just piss me off. Um, it's getting that invested in something so you don't, drive me a little crazy. Yeah, so you don't like sewage or permadeath is what I'm getting here, Rob. Yeah, I think those are those are kind of my two those are my two buttons. <laughs> Uh, if you com- if you could find a way to combine both of them, uh, then you've got my kryptonite. Uh, it's like a sewage management system, like Sim, where like one mistake and you're just dead. Uh, you drown your city. Uh, your you, your your unique city that will be you know destroyed if anything ever goes wrong. Uh, yeah, if that happens, uh, that that's my that's my ideal nightmare. All right, we won't make we won't make you play one of those if it comes out. Uh, well, if, if, a, if a roguelike is more an RPG, what, so there's a company called Fail Better Games that made a, a game called Fallen London, and they've got a game coming out next year that I guess, I can't tell if it's like a strategy game or a roguelike. I guess it's a roguelike. It's called Sunless Sea, and you stock up a ship. It, it feels very much like FTL or something, though. Uh, and you stock up a ship, and you go out, and you explore this underground world in, in this, this universe they've created in, in the Fallen London game. Um, I don't know if that would qualify as a strategy game, but that's certainly something I'm definitely looking forward to. There was next a year. there was a time when people were tweeting things from Fallen London, uh, a couple like this is a few years ago, and everything about it just sounded really cool. But I never actually went around and and, and played it. Uh, so so what is it? For, well, Fallen London, and I'm, if I say this, everyone will probably run screaming from the room. But don't panic. Don't be afraid. Fallen London is basically a kind of a Facebook game. I, I, now I've done it. Uh, it's not literally on Facebook. Uh, is it free? Yeah, I'm afraid oh, it no. is. I know. <laughs> Tom. I know. But what it does, though, is it, it's based on incredible writing and imagination. Uh, these guys that fail better have created this combination of, uh, you know, steampunk and Lovecraft and Victorian England. Um, it, it, it's it, and and. In this world, you create a character and you you pick quests, and it's it's kind of almost like a choose your own adventure. You're going to do this or that. It's got some resource management. Um, it used to be you were limited to a certain number of turns a day, and they tried to monetize that. But since then, they've totally relaxed that. You can pretty much play as much as you want. But what's notable about it is the incredible writing and this world that they've imagined. So Sunless Sea is a way to explore that world in the context of a, a roguelike in which you're sailing a ship around these underground seas. So that's a 2014 release, I believe. Well, I think that about covers 2013 and uh, gives us something to look forward to for 2014. What are you looking forward to, Rob? You didn't see what you were looking forward to next year. Uh, well, you stole mine. Oh, I'm sure there are more. Well, what about, so on the front of conventional RTSs, I know a lot of people, I don't know much about it, but a lot of folks have high hopes for planetary annihilation. Yeah, so I've got, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a pass for that. Um, I, you know, I can start playing early access. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, yeah, that's definitely something I'm, I'm looking forward to. I'm definitely curious about it. Um, but, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. If, if for me, I think part of it is just, May like I'm excited by some of the big ideas they have, like you know, launching meteors and the planets and you know, cool stuff like that happening. But I also think maybe that's not necessarily what I want from RTSs as, as much right now. Like this is you're just you're, you're catching me, uh, you know, on a particular night where I'm just in a certain mood. But like. I think for me, I kind of want to see RTS. I, I, what, I, what I'm missing the most right now is maybe um, 
slightly smaller RTS games, something in the vein of, you know, say a Warcraft three or old company of heroes. Um, you know, just, just stuff that's a little, a little more focused on a particular type of problem and, and dealing with a huge stream economy. Um, at this moment Rob, doesn't get me. It's, you know what, Rob? Everything you're describing is exactly why so many people are playing these freaking MOBAs. <laughs> you're just you're just one of those guys. Go play your silly League of Legends or Dota 2 or whatever. Oh, I'm so disappointed in you, Rob. <laughs> I didn't say I just wanted one hero. Like you can give me I know, but that's where it leads to. You're oh, on a so slippery it's, so it's a gateway. You're you're on a slippery slope, Buster. That is true. Warcraft three was basically <laughs> like a what if we didn't have a big old RTS built right. around this? What if we just had a hero and some guys? What if we didn't have those guys? <laughs> my my main reservation about planetary annihilation is it, it, it really is one of those Kickstarter things. I don't know I, you know, who knows how it'll turn out. Uh, I'm I'm very much in a wait and yeah. see, but I do at least appreciate that it is one of those, you know, attention management, resource management, multitasky RTSs. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad at least someone is making a high profile one. Yeah. No, it's de- it's definitely something that looks it that looks cool. I, I think. Um, so there's a new Men of War coming out. I think this year, um, Assault Squad, uh, a new Assault Squad game that. You know, sort of caught my interest. If Men of War is interesting, just in general, I think it. Uh, Men of War Assault Squad was a great game, but it also became like it, it hit this weird, like almost EA style, like strip mining of the entire idea. Uh, as they just released Men of War game after Men of War game after Men of War game, each one more ill conceived than the last. Uh, so I'm hoping this is going to sort of recapture the Assault Squad magic. And get us away from some of that awful uh, crap we had to had to endure with um, Men of War Vietnam and Men of War um, Penal Battalion or whatever the hell it was, uh, which was just oh, uh, just, uh, just just <laughs> is that the real name of it? That's not the real name of it. Penal Battalion, really? <laughs> it's it's close. It might be like Forgotten Legions or Sad Soldiers. <laughs> I don't know, but it's about the Penal Battalions in uh, in World War Two. Awesome. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, stuff like that is, uh, you know, caught my eye. Um, I'm really curious about this game, Banner Saga, uh, that, that, that's coming up very soon uh, in January, mostly because the art style just looks fantastic. I haven't played the um, multiplayer pre-release for it, but I'm really curious what this what this campaign is going to be like. Uh, but yeah, you know, I just I, I find myself kind of hoping that um, you know next year brings more stuff like, eh, like a like a war game European escalation. Right, right. That would be nice. Yeah, like I said, if I get if I get two games as good as War Game European Escalation or Airland Battles in any given year, I'll be happy. Yeah. So I think that uh, that's a good place to leave it for this evening, and uh, we will be back next week with what I hope is the inaugural uh, installment of our winter of wargaming. Uh, right now I am getting back into Corson pocket, uh, which is an old classic from uh, well, it's the sold through matrix, but it's part of the decisive battles uh, series. And I got to say it was made in 2003, but the interface seems to have come from like 1995 uh that so i i'm i'm really working i'm really working hard for my fun over this winter of wargaming uh but we'll revisit that uh that next week uh until then uh my thanks as always to our producer michael hermes for putting this episode together uh this has been three moves ahead good night good night happy new year